0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bo Nilsen. I'm a social anthropologist based in Oslo and also one of the leaders of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. In this episode, we introduce you to a new edited volume on Bangladesh. It's titled Mask of Authoritarianism Hegemony, Power, and Public Life in Bangladesh. It was published by Springer this year and is edited by Arild Engelsen and Mubashar Hassan. These two editors are, in fact, also former colleagues of mine in Oslo, and they join us today to talk us through this book. I'm happy to welcome both Arild Engelsen-Rood, professor of South Asia studies in Oslo, and also Mubashar Hassan, adjunct fellow at the Humanitarian and Development Research Initiative, Western Sydney University in Australia. Welcome to the both of you. Also with us are two contributors to this book, Maha Mirja and Ashek Hock. Ashek Hock is a researcher of security and politics in the South Asia region, and he currently works with security and human rights issues in a civil society organization. Maha Mirja is a writer, researcher, and human rights activist based in Dhaka. She writes regularly on issues of development and labor rights, but also environmental justice. Maha and Ashek will offer glimpses into uh, their respective chapters. And welcome to the two of you as well. Now, as we know, Bangladesh recently celebrated its 50th anniversary as an independent nation. Much has been achieved in this half century, including the country moving in the right direction on the Human Development Index for some time now, performing better, in fact, on many indicators than many of its South Asian neighbors. But this is also counterbalanced uh, by the development that you analyze in your book, namely the increasing authoritarianism that characterizes governance in Bangladesh. And in fact, uh, in the newly published handbook of autocratization in South Asia that we have discussed in previous episodes of the Nordic Asia podcast, that book is actually unambiguous on this point. Uh, Not only does it describe Bangladesh as typical of the so-called third wave of autocratization, it also stresses that the integrity and fairness of democratic elections have been undermined in spectacular fashion uh, since 2014. Engelsen Root as one of the editors of this book tell us about how the book engages with this question of authoritarianism. I mean in particular, I suspect that listeners may be interested in the, the mechanisms behind this increasing authoritarian turn in Bangladesh.
0: Right Thank you Kenneth for that question. I there's two central reasons for why increasing authoritarianism in uh, Bangladesh is happening at the pace that it is. Because you mentioned the 2014 election, and that's been an increasing or undermining of uh, democratic practice in the country since 2014. The interesting thing with 2014 election is that it it happened because the opposition boycotted the election. They did not expect it to be Uh, fair, and it wasn't fair. But it didn't help that they boycotted it. And I think it was a tactical error, possibly. Again, there's another election, 2018, which sort of confirms the suspicion that elections in the country would not be fair. In essence, what you have seen now is over the last 10 years or so, is the establishment of what in practice is a one-party state. There are two things here that I think are important to note for this development in, in authoritarianism in the country. And one is that this one-party state is an edifice of central state arms. It's a collaboration of central state arms. In particular, where well, it's been known as the ABC state, so A for Army League, B for barracks or the army, and C for civil service. But it also it includes very much the police or law enforcers and the judiciary and these are these are state arms that collaborate quite closely. there is still the same laws, the same rule of law is, exists as I uh, formerly, but it's applied in a biased way and it's applied in a way that supports mutually officials from these different state arms so Army officers are supported by the judiciary. Compliant judges are given land to build houses and earn a lot of money, etc. So there's a, there's a strong collaboration internally among these state arms. The second development is in laws. The laws have not been changed all that much in the country, but there is one which is particularly interesting. You don't really have censorship In Bangladesh, you don't have state censorship, except for, you know, in certain cases, but that's smaller cases like films and and sex on films, etc. But there is a law that's very central in the establishment of uh, authoritarian state in Bangladesh, and that's called the Digital Security Act. It builds on the previous act from 2013, I think, or it's older, right, but there's a section there. And then it's coming out now again in a, in a new shape in the Telecommunications Act. This act allows for people who are offensive electronically to be jailed. And it's, it's a largely non-bailable offense. So you'd be put in jail and the case may be dismissed by some judge later on, but you still suffer in jail for a long while. Or the case just lingers on. The, the problem here is that it allows for petty quarrels to land you in jail. So what authors and uh, collaborators to this volume have called attention seekers and sycophants, sycophants, as well as other journalists, your rivals may bring a case against you that will be a big inconvenience for you and may even land you in jail this is this is interesting because it suggests and this is the core of the book how does everyone become or a large section of the population become members of this authoritarian setup and that's by allowing these laws to be used by individuals in petty quarrels. So it's not so much censorship as it is self-censorship that allows this edifice to
1: continue
0: its uh, existence.
1: Maha Mirja, if we move from these sort of larger concerns with um, state institutions and state law if we try to ground this sort of larger process of authoritarianism, Maha, in, in your chapter, you've investigated the process through which so-called mega-projects are constructed in Bangladesh. And by mega-projects, I should clarify that we mean these surprisingly many and surprisingly large projects like coal power plants, seaports, express highways, and, and so on. And as I read you, you, you argue actually quite convincingly that the state's push for economic growth through these megaprojects actually reinforce the authoritarian characteristics of the regime. But I also take you to suggest that there's actually something inherently undemocratic about megaprojects, which is a claim that's actually in, in the title of your chapter, albeit with a question mark, mega projects inherently undemocratic, question mark. Could you explain to us why you think these mega projects are repressive in nature?
2: Yeah, thank you, Kenneth, for inviting me here. Uh, first of all, the mega projects uh, you're talking about—most of these mega projects in Bangladesh are, uh, you know, energy generating projects, like you know, power plant projects or infrastructure related to energy transportation. So, you know, these projects are being promoted as to be highly uh, useful for the development of an energy starving country like Bangladesh however as i argued in the chapter that you know the entire process of building a mega project goes through layers and layers of corruption and uh, irregularities and repressive actions which actually begins with the very process of uh, you know the land acquisition itself and uh, you know big infrastructure projects are nothing new in bangladesh but you know what is new in the last one decade uh, is that the number of mega projects have increased quite extensively and, and the extent of repression carried out by the government in these project sites are just simply overwhelming. For example, in the case of Rampal power plant, uh, we have seen you know, two rural villages are just being wiped out from the map of uh, Rampal, which is a coastal district in Bangladesh. In the case of other coastal power plants, you know, the entire farming communities of these areas are just being wiped out. And you will see that there is a routine justification from the government that these farmers are being well compensated and they receive huge amount of money in exchange of their land. And proper rehabilitation towns are being built for these uh, displaced communities and blah, blah. And if you really visit these communities, you will see a very, very different picture. You will see that the local families are forced to leave. The amount of money they receive is not sufficient enough for the land and resources they have lost. And they are forced to pay a large amount of bribe to even receive the compensation money itself. And what is very alarming is that the amount of lies and misinformation we, we get from the field. For example, you know, it's being claimed that each land acquisition process follows some forms of public consultation meetings. And the entire process of acquisition is, you know, done with the participation of local communities. And, you know, thereby the process is very democratic and accountable. But this is a blatant lie because, yes, uh, there are occasional consultations during the land acquisition process, but it is only the local ruling party members who get to participate in these uh, meetings. And uh, most of the times, you know, the local people don't even know about these consultation programs. And even if they know their opinions are hardly taken seriously, and sometimes they're even being seriously threatened or abused for being vocal. So as I have argued in the chapter that this whole process of public consultation is actually being carried out in the first place to create an illusion of democratic engagement which actually doesn't have any kind of accountability to the local communities whatsoever rather any kind of local struggles are being you know dealt with extreme level of harsh actions for instance in Bashkali which is a coastal district in Bangladesh Four local protesters were being killed with a clash with the police in 2016. In Paira Coal Power Project area, we have seen hundreds of false cases are being filed against the local workers. We're just protesting and we have seen enormous number of false court cases, threats or even, you know, physical abuses. Only if you are found to be taking part in uh, any kind of demonstrations. So, you know, it is definitely fair to say that every single megaproject sites in Bangladesh currently have become subject of severe authoritarian oppression and subject of serious human rights violation. And the process of building megaprojects are becoming more and more and more repressive in nature nowadays.
1: You mentioned these local struggles now that are also an important part of the picture, because, of course, whenever there's power, there's also Resistance. And you, you do write about these instances of resistance to mega projects in your chapter as well. And I'd be curious to know just a little more about how these local struggles play out and to what extent they may sometimes be successful. Or maybe to pose this question a little, a little differently, since the book has hegemony it's in its subtitle. Do you see these localized struggles? as somehow having the potential to become a, a kind of counter-hegemonic force?
2: Yes, you know, as we know, most of these accurate lands are uh, predominantly fertile agricultural land in the project side. So it's only expected that local farming communities are not going to be just uh, giving up their land, which is the only source of their uh, livelihood. And it's quite obvious that, you know, local people would protest and try to stop this kind of project. But You know, it's important to note that different areas experience different kinds of resistance and not every local struggle produces the same kind of results or not every local struggle becomes successful. For example, if you look at the case of Fulbari, which is located in the northern part of Bangladesh, we observed a massive movement against an open pit coal mining project there in the year of 2006. And that was a successful movement because the community in Fulbari was able to stop the mining project back then, despite significant amount of state violence and four people died. However, in the recent years, you know, unfortunately, things have changed. What we see nowadays is uh, despite local struggles, you know, the construction of almost all of these mega projects are still going on. So I think you know, it's not a very happy picture out there. So I think it would be interesting to ask why nowadays local struggles are more and more difficult to carry out. And I have noted some observation regarding this. First of all, you know, it seems like the government has learned from its previous mistakes and it has now better equipped to deal with the local people. For example, nowadays, the company and the government together spend a lot of money in the initial phase of the project, for example, in the case of Bashkhali, we have seen there is a lot of effort in bribing the local community leaders. We have seen that an enormous amount of money is spent to buy the loyalty of the local reporters. So the incidents of forceful displacements are, are never reported at all. And the most important strategy of the government nowadays is to, you know, create fear in the area from the very beginning of the project plan, using all kinds of surveillance tactics. So basically, they're very well prepared and well equipped to deal with any kind of local demonstrations from the very beginning of the project, which was not the same in the earlier cases of mega development projects. Another thing is that, you know, a very complex geopolitical scenario has evolved around Bangladesh in the last decades. The extent of Chinese investment has expanded throughout the country. You have heavy Japanese investment in the coastal belts. You have Russian investment in the nuclear power project. And of course, you have Indian investment in, in the Rampal coal power project. So there is a complex international financial network around these projects and a very powerful network of vested interest groups are the direct beneficiaries of projects. So you know, it is interesting that it is not only the Bangladesh government, but also other powerful influential stakeholders are proactively pushing for these projects. And that really demands more and more repressive measures from the host government in case of any chaos in the field. So overall, you can see that the local struggles are dealt with more and more authoritarian measures. However, having said that, you still have different forms of you know, local struggle in each of these areas. So it really depends on the forms of unity and, and the political maturity of the local communities to be able to become an effective counter-hegemonic force that you are referring to. And of course, there are past experiences of successful local struggles and social movements which show that it is not impossible.
1: Ashek uh, Hock, if we, if we turn to your chapter, it's on queer life in Bangladesh, but it's also, um, to a large extent, uh, a chapter on intrusive state surveillance into the sphere of intimacy, one might say. It's based on three interviews, something which I, as an anthropologist, really appreciated. I mean, this way of looking for answers to big questions in very small samples. The main takeaway from your chapter, as I read it, is how these uh, three interlocutors of yours all experience forms of uh, societal censure, but that they do so really in in quite different ways.
3: Exactly. Thank you very much, Kenneth, for for the question. I must say that it was indeed a very interesting research project, but also one with a very high security risk. The issues that I discussed in the chapter is a really very taboo subject. And in fact, people have been killed in the past for raising them as well. So, I mean, that's why perhaps it's no surprise that these things are talked about in hushed tones and muted conversations away from the public space, which really there isn't any for, for this community. It's also interesting as you say that the uh, affects not only to sort of those who are living there and uh, sort of being around it but also those who are writing and researching about them as well. But to go back to your question I think uh, I write about the three queer individuals and their perception of security and insecurity in Bangladesh. They come from different socio-economic backgrounds and that really sets apart their experiences and perceptions of security. So in that sense socio-economic class plays an important role in this regard but there is also another aspect and that is the different social capital that these individuals have the social connections networks and so on that allows us to be who we are they play a very important role in the perception of security one of the uh, interlocutors uh, they come from a wealthy family and enjoys the protection from the society by living in that bubble but within their own family, though, it's not a free space and self-censure continues even there. The other two are more in the public eye due to their activism or content creation, but both of them are fully aware how they should act, speak and express opinions in such places. This is primarily due to their fears of insecurity, but also from a clear understanding that there's really no place for them to turn to in order to find security because of who they
1: are. To return to. return the- this uh, spectre of authoritarianism. In your chapter, I think this is particularly visible in how, as you picked up on just now, one of your interlocutors points out that there is no redress for complaints, no meaningful political process, no public debate to turn to. So, in addition to shedding light on this very intimate experiential dimensions of authoritarianism, your chapter. In a sense, is also a tale precisely of this kind of differentiated uh, vulnerability. could Could you tell us a little bit more about this, please?
3: I think going through this research, it was evident that the queer community finds themselves in a very precarious place, which is often beyond the public institutions and mainstream mechanisms, especially when their identity is exposed, and thus their sense of understanding and their vulnerability is quite different and probably multiplied, one could say. Also, what is very important is the queer lives are criminalized in Bangladesh by a colonial era law. And just the very presence of it impedes a secured and dignified life for the community members. And the question has been asked, well, is there a process of change? How do people uh, bring about change in a peaceful manner in a situation like that? And um, the answer was quite difficult to find. One of the interlocutors, an activist, was most aware of the closed roads ahead. And he was saying that in this um, situation, there is no meaningful political process that exists. It's not possible to really engage with elected officials because that cyclical nature of political change and the ideas of accountability of elected officials to their citizens, all that is absent. It's also not something that really can bring results in their minds, and they don't find a process to safely engage in such mechanisms as well.
1: Just a last particular question to your chapter, because earlier Ariel mentioned this Digital Security Act from 2018. Some listeners may be familiar with it, some may be less familiar with it, but I noticed that in your chapter in particular, this act pops up quite a lot. Why does this act, which has been described as draconian, Why does it become particularly relevant or pressing in in the context of these queer lives that you write about?
3: Exactly. The Digital Security Act came about in October of 2018, I believe, and it was a law that controlled engagements and expressions in the digital sphere for Bangladeshis all over. And there has been a lot of criticism about it since then as it came about. There are some reports as well, for example, between October 2018 and November 2020, so in about two years' time, there have been more than 1,000 cases filed under this act against ordinary citizens, activists, academics, journalists for criticizing government policies or political leadership, etc. And one has to understand these people are still more mainstream than someone in a queer community. They would be even pariah out of this. and. The issue for them, why the digital space is so important, they don't have the possibility to engage in a physical space in the country, in the public sphere of life. The digital space was the safe space for them where it provided the safety of anonymity and thus a security for them in order to engage and find some meanings um, and engagements, a social fabric, uh, one could say. But now that can be criminalized quite easily. Also, as I wrote in the book, Organizing online movements or events on such topics in a digital space can be criminalized within this act as well. So it becomes very difficult for queer community members to find security. Furthermore, what this does is that one uh, nowadays also need some sort of ID to access the internet and access some of these spaces. So it's no longer possible to really hide away from the consequences. And engagements, opinions, even mundane things that one could put on social media could really lead to a judicial process or even extrajudicial ones, sometimes including mob violence, that really affects human lives. So that is why particularly these digital space controlling mechanisms are really, they affect the queer community.
1: It's a fascinating chapter that gives us insights into a sphere of, of social life in Bangladesh that we actually seldom hear very much about. Co-editor Mubashar Hassan, I think the same can be said for your chapter. You write about Bangladeshi rap musicians. You do so with, uh, with a colleague of yours. My hunch is that quite a few listeners might be quite surprised to, to learn that there is, in fact, a, an extremely lively rap music scene in Bangladesh. Tell us more about this and maybe especially why you think rap music makes for such a good entry point into questions of authoritarianism in Bangladesh.
4: Rap music is an excellent form of entry point to study authoritarian governments and authoritarian cultures. Rap music emerged as a protest music in the United States, a democratic country. American rap musicians are pivotal in advancing criticism of authoritarian culture towards black communities in the U.S. For example, black American rappers and rap groups like Tupac Shakur, N.W.A., and Public Enemy raised their voices against police brutality and violence taking place in the black communities in the American suburbs. In recent time, following the brutal police killing of an African-American man, George Floyd, in Minneapolis, rapper Kendrick Lamar's song All Right, which underscores police brutality towards the black community, and Childish Gambino's This Is America, a song narrating and depicting white nationalism and race-infused crime in America, have become signature songs of Black Lives Matter movements. This underscores the power of rap music, not only in America, Researchers have found in Italy rap musicians rejected the political right. During the Arab Spring, Tunisian rapper El General's track, raised Le blood, in which he says, Mr. President, people have become like animals, we are living like dogs, became an instant viral hit. And in recent times, against the backdrop of rising authoritarian culture, India has seen a proliferation of Rap bands and rap singers who have used rap music to address social and political issues like caste, poverty, unemployment, state violence, and so forth. In summary, I should note that rap music's raw and political lyrics and locally contextualized rhythms can connect with audiences in a deeply personal way and act as a potent social critic, especially where the divisions between the powerful and the powerless are most pronounced.
1: I note that in your chapter, I think your interlocutors broadly fall into one of two categories. There are some who are turning away from rap music, while the other category proves to be more resilient and and persevere. This, I suppose, will tell us something quite interesting about Bangladesh today, yeah?
4: Yeah, this trend of being fearful is hardly surprising. They have good reason to fear. For example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, at least a dozen people, including a female professor, a civil society activist, and a cartoonist were sent to jail for criticizing the government's handling of the coronavirus pandemic. And and an anti-free speech law called Digital Security Act was used to muzzle them. Within this highly charged context where the state is more powerful than ever, several leading rappers revealed to us that personal safety is now their primary focus. For example, a rapper said to us, I'm afraid of releasing some of my songs because of incidents such as forceful disappearances of the critics and opponents are taking place. So I'm genuinely afraid. He said his mother told him, tough times never last, tough people last. So this is the time of survival. However, there are some younger rappers who are seemingly less concerned. A rapper called D. Ruthless released his song Bust the Police in mid-2018, during the time of road safety movement, when police and the ruling party reportedly attacked protesters who were demanding safer roads. The song was loaded with political arguments, protest, and criticism in foul and angry language. Similarly, a rapper called Nizam Rabbi, in his song called Rushed, addressed the murder and arrest of journalists, the culture of fear, the lack of freedom of expression, impunity, absence of protection of life and human rights, carelessness of the politicians, and violence against women. The state's attack on critics is reflected in a recently released song by a group called GXP. The title of the song is a uh, Atonko, which means fear in English. In that song the artist say, If we talk against the injustice, the next day you will discover my beheaded body. In these two simple lines, the singer has summed up why a culture of fear and a shrinking space for protest are signs of the time in today's Bangladesh.
1: I want to thank uh, the four of you for, for these fascinating insights into a great variation of the lived realities of authoritarianism in Bangladesh. Before we conclude, I'd like to return to you, Ariel dengelsen root. In spite of this increasing authoritarianism, Bangladesh still does have an active public life that produces occasional criticism of the government and also of specific policies. Looking ahead. Are we going to see more of this in the future, or has authoritarianism already matured into a more stable hegemonic formation that will prove exceedingly difficult to dismantle or, or dislodge?
0: Good question. I mean, it is trying to the Edifice, Army League, governments trying to establish itself as a hegemonic force in Manga. it's Definitely, it's trying. I'm not sure they're succeeding at a discursive level that too many Bangladeshis are not really very <laughs> easy to control. You look at social media, there's a lot of input on different from different news sources. There's a lot of criticism of the government uh, still. And even in print media, there is criticism of the government. So I don't think that it's really a hegemonic order like that at a discursive level. However, the edifice in itself is strong. It doesn't really bother about some of this criticism. Though there are two or three things that are that are interesting. There's some tension within this edifice. There's clearly a lack of discipline within the Army League, and increasingly so. Look at the last series of rounds of local elections. More than 100 people have been killed in local elections. They have been mostly Army League workers, killed by other army league workers. That's an interesting thing in itself. There's also a lack of trust among some of the arms of government. So the army and the police don't really trust one another all that much. What is really an interesting question is where does the influence, where does the impetus for change, where would it come from? I think one of the really important Forces for democracy, in the case of Bangladesh, would be Western countries. They could push the government a bit, but Western countries also want to do business with Bangladesh, so that's an issue, and and they are really quite ambivalent to the whole question of authoritarianism. We have human rights organizations working for change, but we also have businesses who are very happy to deal with the country as it is. I think one of the really important questions here would be, there's also, of course, what Maha referred to as Bangladesh being at the crossroads of a lot of different influences. So there is a Chinese interest, there is an Indian interest in all of this. No one really wants chaos in Bangladesh. So right now you have a certain stability, which is to everyone's benefit. The really important question is about succession. Right now, the whole edifice is built around the prime minister, who is both a very clever, very capable politician, but she's also her father's daughter. So she represents the father of the nation and is dedicated to his legacy, which contributes quite heftily to her legitimacy as a ruler now can some of these the political capability and her legitimacy be transferred to a next generation that is an open question and if not will the edifice hold
1: on that note i want to thank the editors so much for joining us as well as the contributors Masks of Authoritarianism, Hegemony, Power, and Public Life in Bangladesh, that we've been discussing today, was published by Springer earlier this year. You've been listening to the editors, Ariel Engelsen-Rood and Mubashar Hassan, along with contributors Maha Mirja and Ashek Hock. The book is highly recommended reading indeed. My name is Kenneth Bonilsen, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.